three very short readings. <coughs> Acts chapter 9, <coughs> from verse 1. But Saul, yet breathing, threatening, and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and asked of him letters to Damascus, unto the synagogues, that if he found any that were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, it came to pass that he drew nigh unto Damascus. And suddenly there shone round about him a light out of heaven, And he fell upon the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and enter into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men that journeyed with him stood Speechless, hearing the voice, but beholding no man. And Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and did neither eat nor drink. And then in Galatians, and chapter 1, verse 15 to 17. But when it was the good pleasure of God who separated me even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, straightway I conferred not with flesh and blood, Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them that were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia, and again I returned unto Damascus. And then in Colossians, and chapter 1, from verse 24, Colossians 1 from verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and fill up on my part that which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I was made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which was given me to you, Ward, to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which hath been hid for ages and generations, but now hath it been manifested to his saints, to whom God was pleased to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we proclaim admonishing every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, in Christ, whereunto I labor also, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Do be seated.
Which we just really ask the Lord to help us. It's a hot afternoon, and afternoon meetings are normally the times when people go to sleep. Um, but that doesn't, we don't have to take that as a, uh, a normal thing for this afternoon. So let's all just ask the Lord to really be with us. Our Lord, it is a hot afternoon, and we praise Thee that Thou canst be as the dew of heaven to every one of us. Thou canst refresh us, Thou canst renew us, Lord. Thou canst help me in speaking in all my weakness, dear Lord, to be Thy mouthpiece. Uh, thou canst so speak, Lord, that even what we don't understand may go into us, and may in the end be revealed to us by Thy Holy Spirit. Father, we thank Thee for the anointing which is upon the head, our Lord Jesus, and which runs down to the very hem of the garment. We thank Thee there's anointing for speaking and anointing for hearing, and together we stand into it this afternoon. Don't let this time be lost, Lord. No apathy, no dullness, Lord, at all. But we pray that Thou wilt cause the whole time to live with Thy presence, Amen. Thy power, and thy speaking. We ask it in thy name. Amen. 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 Now this afternoon we're going to talk about essential principles. And I'm going to confine myself to four essential principles in this whole matter of vision. And furthermore, I'm going to confine myself to four essential principles in the corporate. So you will understand. You see, our whole thought in this, this, these this teaching, this, these times of being together, was to supplement or complement, if you like, uh, what most of us are getting and receiving uh, normally. There are many times of conference in the country, many times uh, where we're get, uh, gathering together at different places or in our own uh, areas, our own localities, where we are really receiving from the Lord. We're getting to know things about our personal walk with God, about life with one another. But one of the great burdens that is certainly in my heart, I know it's shared by many other brethren, in uh, over all that the Lord is doing, is this uh, ache in our hearts about the confusion over aim. Confusion really over objective, exactly what the Lord is driving at and what he's doing. And this is, as we said yesterday evening in our first time, this matter of vision is the determining factor. And we shall see this evening that it has been the determining factor in every single real movement of the Spirit of God in the, in the history of the church. It has been a question of how much was really seen as to how long it lasted before men took it over and it became something crystallized. So I'm going to take four uh, essential principles this afternoon, and I shall seek by the Lord's grace to be as simple uh, as it is possible to be over them. Now, first of all, what is the difference between a principle and a regulation? What is the difference between a principle and a law? I think we must get this uh, established straight away. Many people nearly die when they hear, oh, principles. We're free from all that kind of thing. But there's a vast difference between a regulation and a principle. Now, for instance, the speed limit is a regulation. It may say somewhere around here, 30 miles per hour. That's the speed limit. Now, 
If you do 50 miles per hour, providing you are not caught, you get away with it. If you don't have a crash, or the police do not catch you, see you and catch you, you've got away with it. A regulation can be broken without necessarily consequences. Uh, there were a number of brothers here on, on Friday morning praying and fellowshipping together and they put their cars outside, just drove round and they parked their cars in various uh, parts just up here in the road and every one of them got a gift from the Richmond-upon-Thames uh, Borough Council. They got a parking ticket. <laughs> Now, that was a regulation. Many other people do it. I hope none of you have. Uh, but many other people, and they get away with it. But it's a regulation. Now, the difference between that regulation and, for instance, a principle is this. If one of you were to step out of the window now, immediately the principle of gravity will take over. <laughs> it is not a question of whether the police see you or not. <laughs> It's not a question of whether we've just got a little notice up which says, please do not lean out of the window. The fact of the matter is that once you step out of the window, the law of gravity takes over automatically. Now, there is the difference between a regulation and a principle. A principle is cause and effect. Cause and effect. And we are not dealing with regulations which can be broken, which can be put aside uh, if we think we can get away with it. We are dealing with principles. Now, principles are normally living things. Uh, uh, I can't explain it more than that. Uh, I'm going to take four principles this afternoon. And all these principles are in Christ. They are all in the life of Christ. Now, did you notice in our reading a remarkable thing, going right back to our previous times, did you notice where Paul got uh, his heavenly vision? <laughs> where it all began? It all began when he got converted. And this is how it began. In... Acts 9, when he fell to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he immediately said, Good gracious, who are you, Lord? I've never persecuted you. Who is it? Paul had never persecuted the Lord Jesus Christ. I am Jesus, said the Lord, whom thou persecutest. Now, you see, we don't think about this. We just think, oh, this was his dramatic conversion. But we never think. It was at that point the blinded Paul began to think and think and think. It is the risen Christ. But how have I been persecuting him? How have I been persecuting him? I've only been persecuting his people. I've only been persecuting the disciples, his disciples. But he said, he didn't say, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou my disciples? Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou my church? He said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? 
And in that moment, in seed form, as all revelation starts with seed form, in seed form, a tremendous truth began to dawn upon the Apostle Paul. Later he went away into Arabia. We don't know whether it was about three years in all, uh, thereabouts that he spent in reflection and meditation. But he says to the Galatians, when it pleased the Lord to reveal his Son in me. Now there's another thing. When the Lord spoke to him, it was above him he heard the voice. But later the Apostle Paul says, it was his Son in me. The moment I believed, something happened. He revealed his son in me. Later on, writing to the Colossians, he speaks about this mystery, hidden from generations and ages, and now made manifest to the saints, which is Christ in you. Now, in English, we can't quite get it, but the you is plural. Christ in you, and you, and you, and you, and you. And in some of your continental versions, you will see that it says, among you. That's not correct either, really. It's in you all, in each one of you. Christ in the saints. Christ in you, and you, and you, and you. The hope of glory. John said, I beheld the city of God coming down out of heaven, having the glory of God. Now, these principles are all in Christ. Most of us would accept, would we not, that the Christian life is Christ. One of the wonderful things that's happening everywhere is, is that people are beginning to see things simply. Yes, they say, the Christian life is, is really, uh, in, 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 its, in simplicity, the Christian life is Christ. It's getting to know Christ. It's experiencing Christ. It's sharing Christ. It's possessing what is ours in Christ. By the Spirit of God. He is glorifying Christ. He's taking of the things of Christ and making them real to me. And so on and so forth. But the trouble is we all stop there. Instead of going on to the church and saying everything to do with the church is Christ as well. The church is Christ. Only it's in us all. It's in more than one. <laughs> do you see? Or do you? <laughs> It's so simple. You need revelation to see it. We got so involved on this matter, you probably think, oh, he's so involved. But in actual fact, when once you see it by revelation, the whole thing becomes simplicity. Absolute simplicity. And all this complex business of church order and church patterns and this and that and the other becomes so involved and top-heavy. You wonder where it all came from. Now, there are these four principles, then. They're all Christ. Now, the first fundamental, essential principle is this. Christ as salvation. Very simple. Christ as salvation. And if you turn to Jude, you will find it very simply put in the little letter of Jude. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was giving all diligence to write unto you of our common salvation, I was constrained to write unto you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered unto the saints. Our common salvation. Our common salvation. Christ as salvation. 
personally and corporately. We are related to the eternal purpose of God by the salvation of God. Coming to know Christ as our salvation. It is so simple. How do I enter the church? I enter the church the moment I'm born of the Spirit of God. The moment, the moment I take Christ as my Savior, I enter the church. I remember I was taught this when I was first saved. And then after two or three years, the pastor in the church, I was approached me and said, now what about joining? And I was stunned for a moment. And I said to him, but I thought I was in. Oh, well, of course, he said. Of course you're in in one way. But we live in the 20th century. He said, we've got to have a certain amount of organization. So then I had to go through all the rigmarole of being investigated by two people from the church, and then they put my name to the church meeting, and they passed me by a majority. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's how we did it in, my, in, in the setup I was in. And so I was in. But I, I've never forgotten the time I was taught that I was in the church. Then later I was told I was not in the church, I'd got to join the church, and I had to have the right hand of fellowship. All a bit confusing. The wonderful thing about the church is this, there is no other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus that's 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11. And if you want an, a, a just as wonderful scripture in 2 uh, Timothy, when everything is going wrong and all seems lost, this is what the Apostle Paul says, verse uh, uh, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 19, Howbeit the firm foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his. The sure foundation of the uh, firm foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. So then, you see, um, we're in the church, we're in the family, we're in Christ by salvation. That's the first great principle. Now, people have got very muddled on this because they have taken a parable in Matthew 13 and they've said, oh, but just wait, just wait. You, you can't do that. How do you know who's saved and who isn't saved? And anyway, the Lord said, let the wheat and the tares grow together. And you often hear this, that, well, in, in the church now, especially now for all these centuries, you've got lots of people, they're not really saved, but we're told to let the wheat and the tares grow together. But if you look very carefully at the parable, it's Matthew 13, and uh, verse 24 to 30, will you particularly look at verse 38, which the Lord himself, uh, in which the Lord himself gives us the key to the parable. He says, the field is the church. No, he doesn't say the field is the church. He said, the field is the world. He's talking about the whole problem of unrighteous people being blessed as well as the righteous. The saved and the unsaved. About them all growing together. God's sunshine coming on both. God's storms coming upon both. Why doesn't God deal with the wicked right here and now? He says, no, leave them grow together. Until the final great judgment. The great harvest. It's not the church. Now in John 17 and verse 21... The Lord Jesus gave us again the key to this matter. He said, very simply, John 17 and verse 21, 
that they all that they may all be one, even as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be un in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given unto them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So it is those whom the Father has given him. He prays for them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I, thou in me, I in thee, they in us. <laughs> what a wonderful unity uh, then uh, this is. And this is what the Apostle Paul says all the way through his letters. He's always addressing his letters to those that are sanctified in Christ Jesus. To the church of God called saints. And we get all sort of worked up on this, you see. And we say, saints, saints. Now then, am I a saint or am I not? Well, I'm not really a saint. See. But you are a saint. Your standing, at any rate, if you're saved by the grace of God, is that you're a saint. You are set apart. You're set apart. And how are you set apart? You're set apart by being put in Christ. You've been set apart in Him. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. With, those, with all those who call upon the Lord in every place. So there is our very simple foundation. Christ as our salvation. Now, it seems to me that although you may not quite understand uh, the importance of this principle, it is vitally important. Because everywhere in church history, the enemy has persuaded believers to add something more than Christ as salvation to the minimum basis of fellowship. So you get sort of things, you must be baptized by immersion, or you must have an experience of holiness, or you must be baptized in the Spirit. Or you must be this, or you must be that, or you must be the other. It's always Christ plus. Christ plus. And there are many, many groups that the Holy Spirit can never commit himself fully to in building. He can bless them. He blesses all kinds of things. But in this great building program, he cannot commit himself to it. Why? Because they insist on making the basis Christ plus. Now sometimes... We say, oh, but we, we love everybody. We love everybody. We're, we're open to everybody. But quite honestly, um, when it comes to it, as soon as any poor unwitting believer strays into our midst, they are immediately engineered, pushed, got into a corner. Somehow or other, we've got to get them into the experience. What a tragedy all that is. If we were only just to remember, if we were only just to remember how painstakingly the Lord took care of us before he brought us right through, we would be much more sensitive in our approach to one another. If you turn to, to Romans uh, uh, chapter um, 15 and verse 7, this is what the Lord Jesus, uh, this is what uh, Paul says uh, to the uh, believers. Wherefore, receive ye one another as Christ received you to the glory of God. Now, how did Christ receive you, may I ask? Did he receive you as a person who was going to be a going-on saint? No. How did he receive you? Did he receive you as a person who would in the end become holy and light? No. Then how did he receive you? Oh, he received you as, a, as one who was going to be one of the spiritual elite. No. 
Then how did he receive you? He received you as someone who was going to be baptized in the Spirit? No. Then how did he receive you? He received you on the basis that you were a sinner. You were a sinner. No good. Your righteousnesses were as filthy rags. And he received you on the basis of grace. Now, if Christ received you on that basis, you must receive every other believer on that basis. And you must love them and care for them and cherish them, just like your own body. Don't all the time shove little books into their hands. Leave pamphlets around, carefully arranged in a spontaneous manner. <laughs> Arrange conversations at the table. And how did you get your experience? Just tell us. Oh, it's wonderful to hear. How marvellous. Tell us, tell us. <laughs> Poor little Willie at the other end goes redder and redder and sinks under the table, feeling utterly condemned. You know the kind of thing. Oh, we all do it. I remember the kind of thing when I was young, when smoking was all taboo. Dare smoke. Or, or wear any makeup. They used to, uh, sometimes some of the families I went to, they used to arrange the conversations. Quite spontaneous, you understand. <laughs> and, um, oh yes, of course, once you smoked very heavily, didn't you? It was terribly injurious to your health, wasn't it? Someone says, yes, yes. Oh, but tell her, how did you give it up? How wonderful the Lord is. And this poor, smelly person, smelling of nicotine, with deeply stained fingers, sort of goes on. We are, of course, helping them in a spontaneous manner to get further on with the Lord. Sometimes it's the matter of baptism that we give people a kick over. Oh, it gets all very gentle and gracious. We long for them to go on with the Lord, but it's nevertheless a kick. Now, what does the scripture say? It says, receive ye one another as Christ received you. And if every one of us would make the basis of our fellowship and the building of the church the grace of God alone, then suddenly in our midst would be released the love of God and the relaxation of God. There wouldn't be any of this tension of just trying to get people all into a particular thing. We'd be able to relax and love people and be human beings in Christ, caring for one another. It makes all the difference in the world. It says also here in the same letter, in uh, chapter 14, uh, verse 1, Him that is weak in faith, receive ye yet not the decision of scruples. Or investigation of his conscience is another rendering. You know, if he's weak in the faith, don't all the time be giving his conscience a prod. But we all do this. Instead of just loving the person, caring for the person, and praying for the person, we forget how long the Lord took over us. And we've all been the recipients of this kind of help. And we all know that sometimes it stopped us from coming through. The very desire of that person has stopped us. It's put us on the defensive. Now, the basis of the church is so simple. It is simply Christ. And it is not Christ plus, but Christ alone. Is a person in Christ? He's my brother. He's my sister. I must receive him. I must receive her. That's the basis upon really which we must 
uh, stand. And you see, it, it goes further than this, for grace is at the root of every single thing in the church, in the life of the church, and in the work of God, in Christian life, and in service. Uh, our inclusion is by the grace of God. Our development is by the grace of God. And the finishing of everything is by the grace of God. Now, if we could only see that, it would greatly help. For often we start in uh, the spirit and we end in the flesh. And this we do in our dealings with one another. We start by praying for somebody and end up in the flesh. Doing a spiritual thing. A very biblical thing. Well now may the Lord help us to see this first great essential principle. Christ as salvation. It's not whether you've come so far along the road with him. But it's whether you have come into him. Whether you have found him as the salvation of God. If that is so, brother, sister, you are ours. And I am yours, whether you like it or not. <laughs> We're all together. We're all together. I can't say to, for instance, a Roman Catholic, who's really in Christ, you don't belong. Drop all that business and we'll have you. If he's been received by Christ, I can only take him. I can only take him. I can do no other. Doesn't matter who it is, what it is. We shall have many a shot one day when we're in the kingdom. It was Spurgeon who said that. He said, when I'm there one day, I shall have many a shot. There will be great archbishops I expected to be there who are conspicuously absent. <laughs> And there will be a Pope or two that I thought should have been conspicuously absent, Spurgeon said, who will be there. But he said, the greatest shock of all will be to find that by the grace of God, I'm there. <laughs> Christ of salvation. The second thing I've, which comes out of this is Christ as our oneness. Christ as our oneness. Union with Christ and with one another. So simple, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 6.17 puts it like this. He that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. I am joined to the Lord, one spirit. He is joined to the Lord, one spirit. He is joined to the Lord, one spirit. He is joined to the Lord, one spirit. Now what has happened to us? Unity of the spirit. Joined to the Lord, joined to the Lord, joined to the Lord. You can't split up the Holy Spirit. We're one. We're one. Just as we said last night, he's in Christ, he's in Christ, he's in Christ, I'm in Christ. So we're all in Christ. Christ is in me, Christ is in him, Christ is in him, Christ is in him. We're all in the one Christ. Now that's our oneness. Now, when we begin to see this, it helps us very greatly. First of all, we must see that all those barriers that divide us naturally have been abolished in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you turn to Colossians and uh, uh, chapter 3 and verse 10 and 11, we read about putting on the new man. You have put on the new man that's being renewed unto knowledge after the image of him that created him, wherein there, cannot, there can be no 
Gentile or Greek and Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bondman, freeman, but Christ is everything and in everyone. Now, will you notice that a whole lot of things have gone? See the things that have gone. Gentile and Jew, the greatest of all divisions. Gentile and Jew. What a colossal gulf between Gentile and Jew. It's gone. Absolutely gone. Completely gone. In Christ there is no Jew, no Gentile. Only Christians. Only members of Christ. Now isn't that marvelous? So there's no Asian and European. There's no European or Western, Western Occidental and Oriental. It's gone. Of course, we've all still got our looks. But the division's gone. The racial division's gone. No black and white. Of course, we're still black. Of course, we're still white. But there's no division. We're one. The middle wall's gone. Any such thing as a, as a, a black church is, is an abomination. Anything such as a, a white church is an abomination in one sense because it goes along the, the lines of divisions which God has abolished in the Lord Jesus Christ. National divisions have gone. Scythian, barbarian, all these things, they're all gone. I'm a German. I'm a Britisher. I'm Japanese. I'm Chinese. I'm a Russian. I'm an American. I would not quite arm on the whip. <laughs> but you understand what I mean. The point is that there's problems. Problems. All our problems are our natural divisions. But they've all gone. There's no such thing as a British church or a German church or a Japanese church or a Russian church. It's only the church in Britain, the church in Russia, the church in the United States. It's one church everywhere. We're one people, don't you see? We're one nation. We're a new people. We're a new man. Isn't this marvelous? This is what the world is trying to create, but we're, we're, we're in the vanguard. Poor old United Nations. But God's been doing it for years. And the trouble is the people of God don't see it. They don't see it. So they've allowed the enemy to make these divisions along natural lines. So that we have racial lines of discrimination in the church. We have national lines of discrimination in the church. We have social lines. Oh, they're very, very, very real. If you're rather upper class, you can go to the parish church. <laughs> if you're sort of what they used to call working class, you went to the temple, citadel, or mission hall, the gospel hall. You were middle class, chapel, or assembly. Very much, it's true, you know. Don't just sort of think, oh, how awful to say things like that. It's absolutely true. Many people are temperamentally drawn to things. People who are sort of more heady, they go br to the brethren, the way of the brethren. People who are a little more feelingful go the way of Pentecostals. <laughs> You find it's absolutely true, I'm afraid to say. And I'm not saying that there are not real exceptions, but generally speaking, all our divisions have been along the lines of social or temperamental things. That's what we have to watch. The church is not temperamental, constituted on our, our temperament. Uh, uh, one dear, well-known man of God advised people to choose their church rather like you would choose your grocer. Go, he said, where you get the best service. <laughs> but that is true. I'm not going to say who it is, but you can read it in quite a number of his books. 
Go, he said, and, and, and where you get the best service, where you feel mo most suited. But the Bible doesn't say that. <laughs> the Bible says we have to stay where God has put us. So simple. Christ as our once, it cuts right across all those things which divides. Religious distinctions. What a tragedy it is when we start to label ourselves. Where is there a label in the whole New Testament? There are no labels. And there are no labels in heaven either. We can only label ourselves when we have failed to see that God has abolished the middle wall of petition. Ephesians 2.14. Remember years ago being at a, a, one of these united meetings where a dear man, and he meant it from his heart, said, well there are, of course, uh, middle walls between us, but never let them get so high that we can't take a ladder and go up and shake hands over the top. <laughs> But should we even accept those walls if it has cost the blood of Christ to abolish them? If it has cost my Savior, his life blood, to abolish those things which divide us, will I be a party to their re-erection, to the rebuilding of them? Never! I'd rather go into the presence of my Lord, a simple, despised, insignificant believer, shut out by the whole Christian world, than have a big label and be a popular speaker everywhere and acceptable in every place. If I was to get drunk, you would all say, oh, how disgusting. He got drunk. And he preaches. How disgusting. But if I say, I'm a Baptist, you say, Oh, really? <laughs> but when I get drunk, I abuse my body. But when I take a label, I abuse the body of Christ. It is sin. And when we see it, it hurts us to begin with. We, sh we shrink from it. But it is sin. And only when we see it as sin can we put it under the blood of the Lamb and let the cross of Christ do its work of abolishing everything that divides us. Then I become a believer. I become a Christian. And all my brothers and sisters become Christian. I long for them to go on with the Lord. They long for me, I hope, to go on with the Lord. One Middle walls of petition broken down. And that's the fullness and the fellowship we spoke of this morning. How wonderful it is when we get someone who shouts a hallelujah. Now, but don't feel that every one of us has got to shout hallelujah. You know, someone says hallelujah and, and everyone feels condemned to why I should be shouting hallelujah. <laughs> or maybe you're the other way and you feel, oh, I wish I had a mallet. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, we're all so silly, we, we, we human beings, we Christians. As soon as things go one way, we all toe the party line. We all toe the party line. We all feel we've got to be and we've got to toe the party line. It's just like the communist system. We've just got to all be and we've got to speak the same language, do the same things, just toe the line. But this is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Be yourself. If you're a quiet person, be a quiet person. If you're a demonstrative person, be a demonstrative person. When the Holy Spirit really starts to work in you, if you're quiet, he'll probably make you a little bit, uh, he'll loosen you up. 
<laughs> and if you're a demonstrative person, the Holy Spirit will probably tone you down a little. But you'll always be a demonstrative person to the end of your days. If you're a feelingful person, you'll always be a feelingful person. Don't be condemned, thank God for it. It's wonderful when someone says hallelujah in the right place. <laughs> but it is, it's wonderful. It's lovely when, when, when we're free in the Lord. And when the person who um, so freely can so praise the Lord or, or, or speak out uh, understands that the others are quiet and that is their gift. And not all the time sort of saying, Lord, help so-and-so, help so-and-so lift up his hands, he's bound. <laughs> of course, if you can't lift up your hands, you are bound. <laughs> It doesn't mean you've got to spend the whole time in your hands up. <laughs> I mean, the fact of the matter is simply to be free in the Lord and to recognize each other. That's part of being one. It's not uniformity. It's great variety and fullness. And when we bring everyone together, we've got a fullness you couldn't have anywhere else. You've got those who are more demonstrative, those who are more uh, are quiet, you've got those who are more forward, you've got those who are more cautious, and in it all you've got a fullness. And that's the church. Oneness. Christ is our oneness. Now let us go beyond that. Brother, sister, you may not like me, you may say, oh, yeah, I don't like him, his temperament and so on, but to, Determined not to know anything save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Then we're one. A bit later on, perhaps you'll thank God for me. <laughs> and I'll thank God for you. <laughs> and Spurgeon once had a lady, as I've often told the story here uh, locally, uh, a, a lady who used to write a letter to him after every Sunday message he ever preached. She used to take him to task for all his grammatical mistakes and then any, any diction... And then finally, she would say anything about the actual spiritual quality of the message. Not so good. Or medium. <laughs> uh, or good. Very good, you see. She would go, and you know that Spurgeon was brought low by that letter that came to him every Monday morning, delivered by a messenger. In the end, he nearly finished his ministry, and he sought the Lord about it. And the Lord, when he was crying to him to do something about this, this person, the Lord said referred to her in a, in a quiet voice in his heart. He said, your treasure? And Spurgeon, what treasure? <laughs> huh? <laughs> and then the Lord said, yes. She's producing treasure in you. And from that day, he referred to her as his treasure. <laughs> Every day, every week she sent him a letter whenever he preached, got it up to the time of the lady's death. His treasure. Oneness. He could have so easily booted her out. It's very easy, you know, to boot people out. If they're getting a bit too much, too difficult, or you can just give them the boot. But you can't do it. Not if you know what the oneness of Christ is. Now, of course, there is a question of discipline, and there's the question of apostasy, and there's a question of heresy. That's another matter. There's a disciplinary matter. But in the question of all other things, we are one. 
And we have to accept one another. It's often through this difficulties amongst us, God's awkward squad, that we really learn our deepest lessons from God. Well, that's, uh, I think, Christ as our oneness. And then, uh, thirdly, uh, third essential principle, Christ as head. Christ as head. No other head. Only his. Colossians um, 2, 19... Scriptures that last. There was Ephesians 4, 2 and 3, John 17, 21, 1 Corinthians 1, 13. Christ as head. Colossians 2, 19. Holding fast the head from whom all the body, uh, being supplied and knit together through the joints and bands, increaseth with the increase of God. Or Ephesians 4 and uh, verse 15 and 16 growing up into him in all things who is the head even Christ from whom all the body fitly framed together uh, and knit together through that which every joint supplieth um, Christ as head you know you and I we can never enter into the eternal purpose of God or know any of the building work of God until Christ is practical head and not titular head. Now, in many companies, in Christian work, Christ is a democratic monarch. That is, the cabinet does all the decisions and he does all the signing. You know what I mean? We all get together and we say, well, now, what do we, what do we think? We'll do this, we'll do that, we'll do that. Well, I think so, so. I think so, so. Well, yes, yes, yes. So then finally we say, now, after we've settled it, yes, we shall do so and so and so. So then we say uh, to the people, the Lord has led us to do so and so and so. Or sometimes what happens is we have this kind of thing, a committee meeting of some kind, and we say, now let's have a word of prayer. We all bow our heads now, Lord, will you please lead us in our deliberations? And then someone brings out a whole thing, which is almost fixed for the whole autumn and, and winter, reads through it all. We have a few suggestions made here, there, and everywhere. At the end, we say, now let's have a word of prayer. Lord, bless this program which thou hast given to us. And then we spend the whole of the autumn and the winter wondering why the Lord has not blessed us. <laughs> Now, is Christ head or not? And if he is head, what does it mean when it says he is head? And why does it say we must grow up in all things into him as head? And what does it mean that we must hold fast the head from whom the whole body fitly framed uh, and joined together through that which every joint so on? What does it mean? You see, this is what I find again and again. If you start to talk about this, this is where they say you're a mystic. They say, oh, so mystical. God has given us common sense. Now, this common sense is, in fact, very rare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, all this common sense that all these Christians have got, it leads them into some incredible messes. <laughs> But everywhere you go, we say, God has given us common sense, we must use it. Of course God has given us common sense. We understand that. But that's not the point. Is he really head or not? What does it mean? If our Lord Jesus Christ is really head of the body, then surely the mind, the will, the intelligence is in the head. 
Somehow or other, we've got to find that head. We've got to know the mind of that head. We've got to know the will of that head. And we've got to do it. I have noted that the secret of every living, developing work of God has been the ability of those responsible to get on their knees and find the mind of God. And you will see in church history that every time man's <coughs> head or heads were substituted for the headship of Christ, that has been the beginning of the decline. The departure. Now it doesn't matter what you have. You can have a, you can have a, uh, uh, it doesn't matter what kind of head it is. Anything that gets in the way of the Lord is perniciously evil. It can be a New Testament set up with elders and deacons. It can still get in the way of the Lord. If they put their heads together instead of his, it's wrong. It's maybe a pope, archbishop, committee, council, board. It was Lindsay Glegg who said, put 12 men's heads together, and what have you got? One board. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, it doesn't matter what, what it is. It can even be in, this is where we make up, we think that if we set there's something sacrosanct about a New Testament pattern, that if we just set up a New Testament pattern just like that, everything's marvellous. God's bound to honour us. He will not honour us if we set up something outside of his life and put our heads in place of his, be it elders, deacons, or what you call them. They may have the most scriptural title in the world, but if they are not able to find out the mind of God, they effectively stop and block the mind of the head. So you see, the secret in every company, if we're going to really move with God, is prayer. To be able to get on our knees. You see, I found here, this is the secret, if we've got any problem on any level, spiritual, material, physical, the first thing to do is to turn to the Lord and ask him. He's here. He's here. That's what the meaning of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's, it's this. He has come to make the headship of Christ a living reality. He's actually here. Now, if, we were to, if it were to dawn upon us in uh, the companies we are, in churches in different places, this is, this is it. The head is here. Now we'll get on our knees and ask him. And expect him to speak to us. Expect him to speak to us. Some people think it's all one-way traffic. Yap, 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 yap. They go on on the dial and never expect. I think they would fall flat on their faces if the Lord said, and now I want you to do so and so and so and so. They never wait to listen. Common sense is evidently the thing, you see. And then after you besought the Lord, you all get together, put your heads together and get on with it. Now, of course, I realise you can take this in the wrong way. I mean, you can start to say, well, 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 how do you know the mind of the Lord? It's a delicate balance because God uses our intelligence. He does use our common sense. He does use uh, many other things that are quite natural. And yet it seems to me that it's the whole question of dependence upon the Lord. I often used to wonder why Moses and Aaron were always falling flat on their faces whenever there was any problem. Especially as Moses has received all that law from the hand of God. I used to think, why does he fall flat on his face? He knows. All he's got to do is look up chapter and verse and say, Here it is, we do this. And if there was any man who knew the law of God, it was Moses. But every time there was a problem, he fell flat on his face. And said to the Lord, what shall we do, Lord? 
Now, he was meek. And it is this kind of meekness, this is dependence upon the Lord, which is so sadly lacking in church life. It is just this ability to turn to the Lord and find the mind of God on any given problem. The headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that's an essential principle. And it is to find the mind of the Lord and to do the will of God, uh, which is so important, to know him as our head. Of course, there are, there should be elders. There is, the authority of Christ is direct to every believer, but it's vested in certain believers. And we are told to obey them that have the rule over us, and so on and so forth. This sometimes causes us some problem. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that those men, as the whole church, have got to be dependent upon the Lord if they're to know his way through. And once the head is somehow blocked, uh, uh, the mind of the head, the will of the head, the intelligence of the head is blocked, the whole body is paralyzed. So we must hold fast the head. How do I keep close to you? By trying to get close? No, by holding fast the head. I hold fast the head and you hold fast the head, we come together. When I grow up into the head in all things and you grow up into the head in all things, speaking truth in love, then we find the body. Do you see? It's the Lord who is the key to it all and the headship of Jesus Christ. Lastly, um, uh, the last essential principle I mentioned uh, this afternoon is Christ as life. Now, this is, I think, a point which is sadly overlooked, even in many of the companies which we represent, all over. This matter of Christ as our life. You know, the church is an organism and not an organization. Now, everyone believes that. Everyone, even it's taught in Bible colleges. The church is an organism, not an organization. Well, what do we mean? We mean this. An organism has got a very real organization, but its whole organization has developed from the life within it. Get it? My body is an organism, but my whole organization, I've got a tremendous organization in my body. I've got, for instance, a built-in thermostatic control, a built-in heating system. I've got an intelligence system much better than the GPO. <laughs> which sends messages backwards and forwards through my body, flashing at all times. Just to lift my hand up has taken a number of messages from the head to different parts of the body. Just to waggle a finger like that is just a tremendous thing. GPO would take hours doing that even. <laughs> and even then a lot of it breaks down. <laughs> We've got a tremendously highly developed organization, but where does it all come from? Did I get it by reading it books? Did I get it from a university? Was it conferred upon me? At some later stage in my life, did someone give it to me? No, it's all in the life. When I was a blob that size, just about that size, a little tiny thing, it was all there. All inside the life. All my mother had to do was feed me, give me air and sleep, and the organization did the rest. When I didn't need much organization, I didn't have so much as I needed. When I got older and uglier, I needed more. It's all developed from inside. 
I've never added a bit to it. It's all inside. Now, isn't that amazing? Look here, just to go like that, that's taken a bit of organisation. Like that. <laughs> taken a bit of organisation. All inside. Now, the difference between the church... That, uh, well, let's put it this way. The church is an organism. It has an organization, but it all develops from the life inside. Now, a car, let's put it this way. A car could be, we could, for the sake of illustration, we could say a car is an organization, but it's static. A car, a 1927 car, remains a 1927 car in 1973. A 1935 model remains a 1935 model in 1973. A 1960 model remains a 1960 model in 1973. But my body is up to date. Here I am with a contemporary 1973 body. And furthermore, every cell in my body gets changed every seven years. Eight years ago, there wasn't a bit of me here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, renewed, renewed, renewed. Really, it's absolutely true. It's all renewed. It's the most amazing thing. My body is an organism. It's got an organization. Of course it's got an organization. But it's all developed out of the life. Now, the church is an organism, not an organization. All these traditional things, the denominational things, are really like the cars. They're model from 1600 and so on, so and so, in 1970. 1700 and so and so, in 1970. 1800 and so and so, in 1900 and so and so, in 1973. Because we failed to understand that God said, not I was that I was, but I am that I am. He is the I am. And he wants to express himself always in living. He wants to renew and quicken. If we'd understood this at the beginning of church history and right the way through church history, oh, what a different story it might have been. What a different story. Every time the Holy Spirit has broken in, this is what has come back in. I am, not I was. Suddenly everyone started talking the word of God in contemporary language. Everyone started to, to behave in a contemporary manner. The whole thing has become contemporary. The very organization is contemporary. And then men have taken over and made it, and made it something. Institutional, traditional, formalized it, crystallized it. And it becomes an antique, polished up and revered from the past. A monument to what God did so many years ago. Oh, if we'd only understood the church was an organism, it would have been so marvelous. Now, the church is an organism. It's all within the life. So everything is inside the life. You just let the life develop and it comes out. Do you understand? <laughs> it's all inside. I mean, why is this flower like this and this one like this? Because this has a Tokyo chrysanthemum life and this one's got a thing called stock life, that's all. So this has this pattern, that has that pattern. The pattern is in the life. This is where people make their great mistake. Some believers get together, they have real experience of the Lord, they enjoy the Lord, they're spontaneous before the Lord, and then immediately they say, now we must have elders and deacons. And then a few minutes later, we must have a church pattern. Now then, we'll have this, we'll have that, and we'll have the other. It's amazing, sometimes you get just a handful of people and they've got to have elders, deacons, and a whole church pattern. But the minimum for the gathering, for the gathering of the church is two people. Now where are you going to have elders? <laughs> <laughs> Unless you say, well, look here, I'll be the elder and you be the congregation. <laughs> of course, it's ridiculous, isn't it? 
We don't need elders. We don't need deacons when we're when we're 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 small in number. All we've got to do is to love each other, care for each other, share Christ, grow in Christ, and then somehow the life of Christ inside says, "Now there's need for real leadership here, defined leadership." And gradually they emerge from within. We don't sort of impose them upon the church. They emerge from within. The Book of Proverbs said, "A man's gift shall make room for him." If a man's an elder, he'll be an elder. It doesn't matter what anyone says. The fact is, everyone will turn to the man. They can't help it. If a man's a prophet, he is a prophet. It burns in him. No matter what you say, a college can't make a prophet. God alone makes a prophet. We can go on in all the other gifts. It's within. It's the life within. The pattern is inside. So you see, why is it that sometimes we go to some New Testament pattern set up and it's as dead as doornails. They're all lovely believers, but it's as dead as doornails. We go off to something else which is, which is as far from the New Testament pattern as it's possible. It's full of life. We say, oh. <laughs> then we have a great problem, all we think. Now then. Then we think, well, of course, what it means is that God's not bothered about his word. Of course God is bothered about his word. Of course he is. The fact of the matter is that you don't, a pattern outside of the life is a regulation. It's just something dead. Do you understand? You get the life inside of believers flowing through more than one believer and you start to have church life. Isn't it true? Isn't this what we've found? As the Spirit of God comes upon people, we care for one another. In a way, we never cared. I remember a brother coming up to me in Norway, um, a, a deacon uh, in Lutheran church, um, and he said to me, Brother, he said, uh, when you last met me some year or two before, he said, I, I wasn't a Christian. I don't think I was even saved. Although he said I was leader of the youth work in the church and many other things, I don't think I was even saved. But he said, about uh, eight, nine months ago, the Holy Spirit came upon me, saved me and filled me. And he said, do you know the first thing? And I thought, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say he spoke in tongues. He said, do you know the first thing that happened, and I was all ready for it? He said, I wanted to hug the people on the other side of the aisle. And he said, I'm so amazed, for I never felt like that for them ever before in my life. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Much more important than any other kind of manifestation is that tremendous sense of oneness, longing for the rest of the family. Longing for the other members, longing that they may be built up, they may share, they may be, they may be included and grow in the Lord and in grace. The pattern, the gifts, everything is in Christ. Some people have got the idea that gifts are as if God comes along and he takes sort of certain like fruit, apples, and he ties it on. Here's one gift. And now I'll give you this gift, and he ties on that one. And he says, here we are, there's another one. I'll tie that on there. But that's not gifts. Gifts are in the life. It's the manifestation of the Spirit. It's life, really. It's only life, isn't it? It's only Christ expressing himself. But think of it like that, and it's absolutely marvellous. It's the risen, glorified Christ expressing himself through the members of his body, and then it becomes something wonderful. All these things are in, I've seen many, many mistakes made on this matter. How many times people have come to me and said about eldership? When we began here, years ago, 
we began to see things. Of course, we did the, the first thing we did was we decided to have a New Testament pattern. We, did, we fell into the same trap as everybody else. So uh, we, we spent uh, a while praying about it. And this is the interesting, we did it so spiritually, you can't believe it. We prayed for the whole week, and then we set up our New Testament pattern. Lord's table on Sunday morning. And then we said, now we must have elders and deacons. So then we had some prayer and fasting, and we spent a few days in that. And then we appointed three as elders and four as deacons. It was the most spiritual way we could possibly have appointed, don't you think? Most spiritual. Couldn't have done it better. Fasting, prayer, and much real desire that God should have the glory. Two years went by and we had a perfect New Testament pattern. And then after two years, I became aware of a kind of big rumbling inside. I can't, there was no trouble, but there was like a, a kind of inner shaking. And I became more and more disturbed by this sort of feeling that somehow something was trying to get out. Something inside was trying to get out. So in the end, 13 brothers, we spent a day of prayer and fasting. And what the Lord showed us was so simple. Uh, over on the table was a little acorn. And it was in one of those glasses. And in the moment uh, during the day, I opened my eyes and I saw this. And it was as if the Lord just said to me, there. You see that acorn? Now you see that unity of the outer shell? It's static. That's your pattern. It's not in the life. It's outside. Inside that oak, inside that acorn, is the life of an oak. It will smash that outer shell, but it will grow up and it's capable of producing thousands and thousands of oak trees. In a flash, I saw it. Oh, I thought, the elders. We've got the wrong elders. <laughs> Deacons, oh my goodness. How foolish of us. The thing's in the life. It's in the life. Then we thought, what shall we do? So we decided we would do nothing. We would pray and trust the Lord. And one by one they all fell out. Oh, it was the most amazing thing I remember. person playing the piano was Nell R.A.M. Playing the piano. Suddenly one day broke down in tears. Couldn't play anymore. She was out. Then uh, one of the uh, 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 brothers who could speak reasonably well, he went out. He just, he couldn't, when he stood up, his English wasn't in the, even really King's in, Queen's English. It was nothing. So he went out. By the end of one Sunday, we were left with one deacon and one elder. <laughs> and as that wasn't a New Testament pattern, we thought we'd better let it go altogether. <laughs> and so we let the whole thing go. Now, what did we do? We went all back to being brethren. whole lot of us just went back then. And then out of the midst emerged the real thing. We learnt our biggest lesson. That other pattern was superimposed upon the life. The real thing was inside. Now, this is where the devil waits. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? In the book of Revelation, when that child, that man-child was born, the devil was waiting to swallow it up. Always it's the same. devil waiting to swallow anything up that's of God. And it's so today, everywhere over our country, something is happening. And the devil is waiting to swallow it up. And one of the ways he does it is by imposing a New Testament pattern. It's an imposed pattern. It doesn't come from within. But you know, all we've got to do is to love each other, care for each other, stay in Christ, abide in him, grow in him, and the pattern will come. The whole thing will develop from within.
Christ as life. That's the cross and the spirit. There's no other way for life. We have to die for there to be life. And we have to die again for more life. There has to be a winter for a summer, and another winter for another summer, and another winter for another summer, and another winter for another summer. Always for fruit, there has to be pruning. There has to be a winter. And so if we're going to know life, the life of the church is ebb, uh, ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. It's an organic thing. Have you noticed that? Everything goes into death, comes out into life. You'll find at one time your prayer times are full of life, and then they begin to die. And then they come back into life again, if it's organic. If it's organic. So everything, teaching, every part of the church, it's all ebb, flow. Ebb, flow. It's breathing, living. It's an animate thing. It's growing. But when we begin to see this, you see, it's Christ. See how you understand, you see, people say, mystical. <laughs> but you know, really and truthfully, the church is quite inexplicable. And every time in church history when there's been a great moving of the Spirit of God, it's this thing which has hit the world like a bomb. This living, organic, inner thing that's full of life, full of power, seems to be directed from heaven, provided for by heaven. It's as if Christ is walking again on earth in poor human vessels. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, once again we do need real revelation if all that's been said this afternoon is going to mean anything to us. And especially, Lord, we pray for every situation in any part of the country where, Lord, somehow what we've said this afternoon has some bearing. Oh, Father, we pray that our, the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. May we begin to understand some of these essential principles. Know, Lord, thy Son as salvation, as our oneness, as our head, as our life. Father, help us, we pray. We ask it together in his name. Amen.